0: Morning, we look at part three of our series in Esther 2 1 through 18. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? And uh, I will read this next section of the narrative of Ruth to you. Esther 2 verses 1 through 18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women? Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman
1: pleased
0: him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. This would not go into or she would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, I pray that You would give us undistracted minds. Minds that, are, that can be cleared of those presuppositions which may confuse us about the intention of this text. May we see, Father, Your steadfast love, Your mercy, Your grace, Your loving kindness to sinners like us in the midst of a
1: dark and wicked world. And may we bless You for such mercy.
0: Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within us. May we bless Your name day. Because you are a God who forgives all our iniquity and heals our diseases and redeems our lives from the pit and crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. You are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love.
1: You are a God who does not deal with us through our sins or repay
0: as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is Your steadfast love for those who fear You. And that You have moved from us our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, and that You show us compassion. Compassion as a Father to those
1: who fear You.
0: Father, may we see You in this glory today and be changed by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As we have said the last couple of weeks, the main idea of the book of Esther, we have said as this, you can see it in your outline, in in your notes there from the bulletin, see the glory of God as He providentially works Redemptive reversal at the most dire moment for the sake of Christ and then learn to trust Him wholeheartedly. I suppose we could say that in a little more simple and succinct way. Maybe we could say it like this. Watch God turn things around at the last and worst moment for the sake of Christ. Watch God turn things around. In the first half of the book of Esther, we mentioned last week that there is a layering of dangerous and threatening and discouraging, frankly, elements which add up to the dire moment in the life of the Jews that the book of Esther brings us to. Jews are God's chosen people from whom He promised to bring the blessing of Christ. And there are many times throughout the Old Testament where it looks like the people of God will be cut off. But it's not always because of a dangerous ruler that God's people are threatened. You know this from the stories of the Old Testament. Sometimes we wonder if God's promises will come short and be nullified, or his plans for his chosen people will fail because. Of their own sinfulness. How often does that come to the forefront throughout the Old Testament? Today as we study chapter 2, the first 18 verses, you may be surprised at what contributes to the dire moment that we will come to in the life of these of God's chosen people. And again, surprised at how God providentially turns things around and weaves even human sinfulness into the fabric of His redemptive plan in Christ forever. I hope today will surprise you. And I hope it also will encourage you and give you great assurance in Christ as the people of God. So let's dive right in together. I want to walk through this story and there's six points that will help guide us through the story. The first element that is leading us in this dangerous direction. Number one is Ahasuerus' depression. You notice in verse 1 that he was remembering things. He remembered Vashti. Well, there's some historic context that you need to be made aware of before we just look at this particular verse. Chapter 1, you remember, opens in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. It's the year 483 B.C. You see that in chapter 1 and verse 3. So the third year of his reign, year 483 B.C. The feasts, remember, were to gain loyalty and support toward a military campaign against Greece. You remember, we talked about that last week. Now, this chapter, chapter 2, takes place in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. Let your eyes go down to chapter 2 and verse 16 you can see there, it refers to the very year. The seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. Get back to the text there. Now in the year is 479 B.C. 479 B.C. Did you know that between those two years of accounting here, the third year of Ahasuerus' reign, the seventh year of his reign, that he did go out and embark on that military prospective battle with Greece. You know how it turned out. It was a miserable failure. Very interesting. In 480 BC, he crossed the Hellespont into Europe with a large army. He was victorious at the Battle of Thermopylae. You remember that battle from history in high school maybe, the Battle of Thermopylae, and Artemisium. And he captured and raised Athens. He even temporarily gained control of the mainland of Greece, north of the Isthmus of Corinth. Finally, Ahasuerus and the Persian navy was then defeated by Leonidas. Remember that name in Greek history? Leonidas and the Greco-Spartan Navy at the Battle of Salamis. You probably remember that name way back in your memory somewhere as well. He was defeated. This was one of the largest naval battles of the ancient world. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was defeated. This battle was the beginning of the political military momentum that led to Greece actually becoming independent from Persian rule. And that defeat depleted Ahasuerus' treasuries. Remember how he was showing off all of his wealth in chapter 1? Gaining loyalty. Well, that, that military defeat did a great deal to deplete his wealth. And Ahasuerus, is, Ahasuerus was discredited in the eyes of his subjects for this defeat. And so you can understand why he comes to this chapter and he is discredited discouraged, he's depressed. And as he's sitting there, he's also, maybe we could say, regretful. It's difficult to say exactly how the king felt from verse 1 of chapter 2, but it's easy to imagine that he felt regretful. His defeat may have made him feel regretful. You could imagine a king sitting there, going back over what happened in his military campaign. Oh, if I would have done that differently, or that differently, or that differently... And his memory turns to whom? Vashti. What she had done, what had been decreed against her, and I suspect maybe that made him feel regretful. Particularly because of the response of his counselors around him. What do they suggest? Hey, let's find you another wife. Shall we? Hmm. His memory of Vashti was maybe tormenting him. Just as he may have wished to retrace some of his military activities, maybe he wished to retrace some of his words and actions with Vashti.
1: Now think about that.
0: Where is God going with all this? Even in all of this, God was providentially at work for the good of His people and the sake of Christ. Follow the story as we keep going. As you could expect, a depressed, depraved king as he was, Ahasuerus turned to immorality to escape his memories and feelings and to gratify his sensual desires. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus, you'll hear me refer to him from time to time throughout this, this story. The Greek historian, he wrote that the king's life following this great defeat between chapters 1 and 2 was filled with sensual overindulgence. History makes note of that for this very king. So number two, Ahasuerus' immorality. We read about this in verses 2-4. The king's young men suggest, let beautiful young women be sought out for the king. And so on. And of course, verse 4 ends with, this pleased the king, and he did so. So letter A in your notes, he planned to expand the harem. His attending young men, counselors, nobles, have a new bright idea to lift the king's spirits from his less than happy memories. A beauty contest, as it were, is what is about to happen. To expand his harem, to find a queen, the plan is to choose officers in every province to seek out and gather beautiful women, beautiful young virgins in particular, as the text says. Bring them to the citadel in Susa, his castle. Place them under the care of Haggai, one of the king's eunuchs who is in charge of all of the king's women. And let them have, notice later on in the text, one solid year of cosmetic treatment. Kind of ridiculous. So he planned to expand the harem. And how does he do it? Not in an upright way. Letter B in your outline, he planned to replace the queen. So after a year of cosmetic preparation, whichever young virgin brings the most pleasure to the king will be the queen instead of Vashti. This plan pleased the king and it was set in motion. I mean, as you think through all of this and see it in its reality, doesn't it come across to you as rather outrageous? Certainly immoral? Incredibly selfish. And we'll see more of that as we go. In fact, this was not even the typical way Persian queens were chosen. Persian kings would typically have concubines, yes. Young women who would come to the king's bed as virgins and then for the remainder of their lives be part of his harem, living in his palace, waiting to be called upon for his desires if ever he did call upon them, which we also saw in the text. You'll notice the change of words from young virgin to concubines. Some of them were cared for, but very lonely for the rest of their lives. Persian kings would also have one or more wives, not only for the purpose of pleasure, but also procreation for, for descendants. And these women would typically be chosen from noble families, close official of the king, their families. But what Hasuerus sets in motion is even astonishing in terms of the other Persian kings. It is again another demonstration of this king's power, his depravity, his wickedness, his dangerousness, his selfishness. In fact, Herodotus indicates that everything and everyone was at the disposal of the kings of Persia, whether even young boys were gathered and castrated to serve the king's eunuchs. You notice how many times the word eunuch is referred to in this chapter. Who were those? Young boys gathered and committed the rest of their lives to the service of the king. Young women chosen and gathered into king's harem for the rest of their lives. Everything and everyone was controlled by the power of the king for his pleasure. That's the life Ahasuerus has lived. Herodotus also tells us that Ahasuerus' immorality and sensual overindulgence is what actually led to his death. Do you know how Ahasuerus died? Not surprising. He pursued immoral relationships with the wives of his own officials and then was assassinated in his own bedroom. But even in the midst of all of this human sinfulness, is God's providence stopped? No. It's unfolding. God is still at work for the good of His people and the sake of Christ and His coming and all of the redemptive plans that He has made in Christ forever. Now, here's where the story comes a little more to our own home and our own hearts. It's not only Ahasuerus' issues through which God works to redeem His people. Even God uses the sin
1: struggles of His own children
0: to unfold His providential plan. Number three, Let's look at Mordecai's worldliness. This is in verses 5 and 6. Now, verse 5 makes it extremely clear what Mordecai's identity is. He was what? He was a Jew. Letter A He was a Jew. Mordecai's Jewish descent is highlighted by giving his family lineage son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Mordecai is a Jew and he is part of a clear family lineage of one of the sons of Jacob. Mordecai is of the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai shares a common ancestry even with King Saul. Remember, King Saul was of this tribe and had an ancestor called what? Kish. As well, you look at it in 1 Samuel. Which is something we'll need to remember later in the story. So he is a Jew, but also, let it be, his family had been exiled. Now this is important for us to understand a little bit of the timing of the Jewish exile in this story. It's very important to understand what's going on here. His family had been exiled. Mordecai's family was exiled with Jeconiah. You notice that here in verse 6. He'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, and at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Jeconiah was also known as Jehoiakim. Remember that name? You're probably more familiar with that name. The king of Judah, who was exiled by Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai's entire life so far then has been lived where? In exile. He's a child of the exile. He's an exiled Jew. He lives in Susa attending to the citadel of the king as you wear it. Now there's something very important we need to recognize and consider. Mordecai is a Jew who is living in Susa after, notice this, after the return of the Jews from exile. Now that is extremely important. We might say it this way as one of the uh, commentators did. Susa was his address, but it was not his home. Where was his home? Jerusalem, Judea, the temple. That was his home. His family had been exiled in what year? Do you remember the year that Nebuchadnezzar exiled the Jews and destroyed Jerusalem? This is why it's important to remember those dates sometimes. 586 B.C. And since then, we know what happens. Jewish history. Cyrus I had ordered the return of the Jews to Judea in what year? 539 B.C. Wow. At the beginning of chapter 2, what's the year? 479 B.C. We're about 60 years in. Why wasn't Mordecai... In Judea with the people of Yahweh? That's the question I don't know the answer to. Why would why didn't he go home? What was I'm going to speculate a little bit with you. Maybe it's even more than speculation. Maybe the text means us to draw this conclusion. Surely every Jew who was passionate about Yahweh and passionate about Yahweh's people and his promises would be longing for Judea. Do you remember how Daniel longed to go and
1: the exile, the return from exile happened after his life. They longed to, for Judea and
0: Jerusalem and the temple. Even Nehemiah, remember? The, the, the books in the order here of history are Ezra, Nehemiah, then what? Esther. Nehemiah. Who was Nehemiah? He was the king's cupbearer. He was higher ranked than Mordecai was. And he didn't stay in exile. He was allowed to go back to Jerusalem? Ezra went home. Nehemiah went home. Why is Mordecai still here? That's the question. Another interesting observation is that we must take note of his name. What's his name? Mordecai. What is that name? Well, his name. Do you know what his name means? It means man of or worshiper of Marduk. Who's that? That's a deity of the Babylonians. Now, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, which are all Babylonian names, he had a Babylonian name. But, right off the bat, in Daniel, we know those four men and their Hebrew names, don't we? They're given right there in the first chapters of Daniel. But unlike those four Hebrew men in the book of Daniel, we never are given Mordecai's Hebrew name. Does he have a Hebrew name? Only a Hebraized version of the Babylonian name. Why aren't we told Mordecai's Hebrew name? Who gave him that name? Worshipper of Marduk? What worshipper of Yahweh would name their child that? You see? You see where we're going with this? Who gave him that name? Was it given to him by his parents? Did they give him a Hebrew name or did they not? Or maybe... The narrator of Esther is showing us that he was afraid or ashamed to refer to his Hebrew name and reveal his true identity, his true God, and his true people. Maybe that's who Mordecai was. Why did Mordecai tell Esther not to make known her people or her kindred? Did you see that in verse 10 and 11? Don't tell anybody who you are. Don't tell anybody who your people are keep it quiet Esther. as we meditate on these observations there are some important ideas that I think we need to keep in mind the author of Esther does not tell us the motives of these characters that we're watching he doesn't tell us the motives that lie behind their words and actions we're left to think about it for ourselves Neither does the author of Esther weave moral judgments about their motives or their words and their actions. You ever notice that? You come to these different texts and you're like, I don't remember this being in Esther. Was this right? Or is it wrong? What should they have done? What would I have done? That's exactly how we're to respond to the letter and to the book of Esther. The author, capital A, leaves it a little bit ambiguous for us so we can think through it for ourselves the author's silence on these moral judgments is not accidental if we believe anything about divine inspiration we know that every word is breathed by god and just as god intended it there it is for us full of purpose this intentional moral silence directs our attention to the main point of Esther. And it helps us to avoid making any of these characters a moral example to follow. It helps us to see the glory of God and His providence and His saving promises in spite of these messy situations that we read about. As I look at chapter 2, I'm not thinking, are you? Wow, Mordecai is someone to be like. Esther is a woman I want to be like. That's not what we're thinking anymore, is it? Now we're questioning all of this. And we're supposed to. And we're supposed to think instead, how is God going to work all this out? All this mess. And still accomplish His plans. And keep His promises. That's what we're supposed to be thinking. And that's the point of Esther. With that being said, I believe we can conclude that Mordecai was struggling to live in a pagan world as an ambassador of Yahweh, as a citizen of the kingdom of Yahweh, without loving the world and the things of the world. Do we ever struggle with such things? Of course we do! Now this story becomes closer to home. It seems that both he and Esther were assimilating easily into the darkness of the world of Susa, not standing out as light in the world. They were holding back from identifying themselves as worshipers of Yahweh and courageously identifying themselves with the people of God. And that conclusion seems particularly valid when you read a text such as Jeremiah 29, 1-14. Would you turn there with me? Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah was a prophet who preached in between the events of exile. Some of them had already gone. Some of them were still there. And he was preaching to the Jews who were being exiled. Now, this is one of those texts, and we come across many of these. Jeremiah, how many of you have heard of Jeremiah 29.11? And you've seen it written all over religious cards and all kinds of stuff. This is one of those texts that has been taken and more money has been made off of it in the Christian community than maybe any other verse. I'll read the verse for you, and then then we'll read the whole text. 29.11, 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Boy, that, that verse has fueled the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel like maybe no other verse in the Bible. Now let's see what God is intending by this verse, shall we? Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs of the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers and departed, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is God's Word to the exiles. Catch catch the passion of all of these words and and the heart of it all that God is giving to His people. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of this. I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it is welfare you will find. It is it is in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Listen carefully. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you My promise and bring you back to this place. God is telling His people, I'm not going to have you in exile for long. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you back to Judea, to Jerusalem. The temple's going to be rebuilt. The walls are going to be rebuilt. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will be, I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek with your with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now think about how a person of God, a worshiper of Yah, would feel about that text. That's why Daniel would open his window and pray every day, three times a day, God, fulfill Your promises, bring us home every day now what's wrong with mordecai here do you see what do you see where we're going here the, the israelite person in exile would long to be brought home to the place of the temple in the presence of god yes be build live plant eat and so on but bring us home and he says god says i will gather you i will bring you back how does this help us to understand mordecai's character Yes, Mordecai was seeking the welfare of the city of Susa and its king. The story will clearly demonstrate that particularly in the very next section. But was his heart set on the things that God's heart was set on?
1: It doesn't seem so. He's still here 60 years after the return from exile. 60 years
0: after Cyrus had given the word for the Jews to return. And it seems he had taught Esther to live the same kind of worldly compromising life. So letter C, he should have returned to Judea. And letter D, he stayed in Susa. Maybe Mordecai is afraid of what might happen if they identify with Yahweh and His people. Even though the recent kings of of Persia had been very accommodating to the Jewish people, as history shows. Maybe Mordecai doesn't want to give up or lose all that he seems to be enjoying in the wealth, of, in the wealth of, of Susa. It wasn't easy for those exiles going home at first, was it? They had to give up an awful lot of worldly possessions and comforts to go home. To Mordecai, it seems it's more desirable to identify with the world than to identify with Yahweh, His people, and His promises, and wholeheartedly trust God for the outcome. So will Mordecai's worldliness sink God's plans and stop His promises for His people? No. Even in the midst of this, God will providentially work for the good of His people and the sake of Christ. Number four, Esther's background. Four very important facts that we need to learn about Esther in this one verse 7. I'll just hurry through these. First, she was Hadassah. That was a Hebrew name. Now it does give her Hebrew name. As well as her Babylonian name. The word, the name Esther, is a Hebrew transliteration of the name Ishtar. Remember hearing that name? That is the Babylonian goddess of love and war. And so, again, I wonder how did she get that Babylonian name? Was it given to her by her captors, by her subjects, or by her cousin, Mordecai, maybe? The story doesn't tell us. And the question that will come up in Esther's life throughout the duration of the story is, who will I identify with? Will I identify as a worshiper of Yahweh and with His people or with the world and with the pleasures of Persia? Number or Letter B, she was adopted, we notice. Also in verse 7, Esther's father was Mordecai's uncle. Esther and Mordecai were cousins, even though it seems Mordecai is quite a bit older than she is. Mordecai was bringing her up and took her in as his own daughter. Let her see she was beautiful. A young woman. A woman of marriable age. And the inspired text goes beyond simply saying that she was a beautiful young virgin, such as were being brought to the king. And the text emphatically indicates twofold description here is that she had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at Esther was above and beyond the other women that were brought into the harem to seek the position left vacant by Vashti and that's not incidental that is not incidental to the story of Esther which we'll see letter D she was orphaned it says multiple times in verse 7 that she had no parents She had neither father nor mother. Her father and mother had died. The story doesn't indicate how they died. Just that they had died and that Mordecai had taken her in as his own daughter. Esther was an orphan. Now, as we consider those four background points, why do you think the Holy Spirit inspired those details to be penned by the author of Esther? Hmm.
1: Just for interest? No. Why? All things work together for the good
0: of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things. Esther's adoption to Mordecai, a man who sat at the king's gate, matters in God's plans, doesn't it? It's a vital piece of God's providential work to rescue His people and keep His promises. Esther's beauty is an important piece of God's unfolding plan. And indeed, He is her Creator, is He not? God's providence wove the beauty of Esther into the tapestry of the salvation of His people and the fulfillment of His promises. Even the death of Esther's parents and all the accompanying pain and sorrow that likely accompanied such a trauma was part of the means of positioning Esther in the right place so that she may be used at the right time by God's perfect providence. Isn't that amazing to think about? Verse 7, Esther's background and how God providentially uses her to accomplish His purpose. The story of Esther powerfully teaches us that there's nothing so insignificant or too sinful even, or too common, or too sorrowful, or so threatening that it cannot be used by God to forward His saving purposes for His people and fulfill His promises in Christ. Number five, Esther's compromise. This is the large section of the text in verses 8 through 14 where we've already read and we get some of the detail of how Esther was cared for and prepared for King Ahasuerus. I'm not going to reread this section. Let me just walk through it quickly with you. As we come to that section, I want us to think very
1: carefully about it, though. We notice in verse 8. That Esther
0: was taken. Esther also was taken into the king's palace. Now, it's hard to know exactly what that verb means. It's passive. Was she forced into this? Some commentators take that position. Was she chosen and didn't refuse? Some take that position. The verb leaves it ambiguous. Was she compelled? Was she chosen? Was she taken willingly? Was she taken against her own desires? If compelled, shouldn't she have refused? Ladies, what would you have done? I know that's hard to put your your feet in her shoes in such a different context. But what would you have done? Would you have committed such heinous immoralities? Even to refuse would mean what? Possibly the loss of life? How would you have worked through that? A difficult decision indeed. The Torah was clear though about God's will on intermarrying with pagan and adulterous relationships. Was it not? Absolutely clear. Esther pleased Haggai, the text says. The young, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Apparently she's not resisting it, this. You see? She's not dragging her feet. She's not impassioned about this. She's actually excelling she is aiming to please she is going with the program Esther was provided cosmetics and food no resistance here only assimilation into all the persian world had to offer the best of food oils perfumes etc in preparation for what we all know where the text leads esther was advanced the text says verse 9 she was advanced She was excelling. She was not resisting. Esther had not made known her people. Even still, it says that she had not told anybody who she was or who she worshipped or which people she belonged to. And indeed, Esther would have her turn with the king, as the text says. Again, think about it. What would you have done if you were in her sandals? Men, what would you have done if you were in the place of Mordecai. Notice in verse 11, every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. He's not trying to stop this either. He's observing. He's watching quietly. Like the king, the empire seems to run on the desires of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Esther has learned to blend into the darkness rather than to stand out in the light. No resistance. She actually appears to be eager. To be an eager participant at this point in the narrative. Letter A in your notes. She was complicit. Verses 8-14. through She willingly assimilated herself into the worldly sensual life and pursuits of the other Persian women. And letter B, she was covert. She was unwilling to be known as a woman of Yahweh, and identify with the people of Yahweh and their pursuits of the eternal promises of God. So we come back to the question, will Esther's compromise sink God's plans and stop His promises for His people? Even in the midst of her compromise, God was still providentially at work for the good of His people and the sake of Christ. Our final point this morning Number six, Esther's appointment. We come to this conclusion of this movement of the story of Esther. And as Esther continued her eager compliance, what happens? Letter A. Esther was favored, verse 15 says. She was favored. When Tyron came for Esther and the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. Now please understand, there's no confusion here. If you look back here, um, verse 14 explains clearly what Esther is about to do. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return uh, to the second harem of the custody, the king's eunuch here, who was in charge of now the concubines. The question is, is she would spend the night with the king? And would she please him or not? That's what's happening here in this text. So how will Esther do? She was favored, letter A. This is a Jewish woman. That's what's so surprising about this. Again, it talks a little bit about her, her Jewish ancestry. She was the daughter of who? And who was her uncle? And what is she doing? This is actually quite shocking, isn't it? And that's the point. She asked to take nothing except what Haggai advised. Now they would ask each woman, what do you want to take with you? You you need to impress the king. What do you want to take with you? And this seems to be another indication of her compliance. She's willing. She's willing. She's not self-willed. She I'll take whatever you think I should take. And at this point in the story, she is something of an antithesis to Vashti. While at least equally beautiful, if not more so, Esther, unlike Vashti, is willing to please the king what then would be the outcome of a willing beautiful woman who was prepared who had prepared herself for a year for her turn with the king
1: she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her now is that a good thing in this context i think not that's
0: interesting how how things have been turned around in our minds aren't they She was winning the favor of whom? She had won the favor of the sensually driven Persian world. Let her be, Esther was loved. There's no allegory or illusion about what happened in these verses. There's a people, Esther, and the king, Asuerus. There's a place, royal palace. There's the month, the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved her. She pleased him, and he loved her more than all the other women. She won grace and favor in his eyes more than all the virgins. And for that reason, what does Ahasuerus do? Let her see. Esther was made queen. He set the crown on her head. He made her queen instead of Vashti. Ahasuerus is
1: absolutely infatuated with her.
0: And therefore, finally, verse 18, she was celebrated. Ahasuerus gives another great feast for all his officials and servants. He calls it Esther's feast. It was Esther's feast. Since he's feeling so good now, he even granted a remission of taxes to the provinces. Since he was feeling extra generous, he even gave gifts in celebration of his pleasure over Esther. Now, is that the story you heard in Sunday school? That is not what I heard. And all I'm doing is walking through the text with you. And it's strange because I had not studied, I had not even really read much of Esther until a few months ago when I read it back through the first time and I'm like, what in the world am I going to do with this in front of all of you?
1: This is not what I remember. The story as it unfolds is rather saddening, isn't it?
0: And sobering. And honestly, it's a bit disgusting. In this chapter, Mordecai and Esther were not models of godliness and courage and faithfulness even unto death for Yahweh's name that some would have told us to believe that they were. King Ahasuerus is certainly no more impressive than he was in chapter 1. If anything, the situation has degenerated even further. What do we make of all this mess? What is the point? What is the main point of Esther in this? Let me try to show you as we close. I would like to come to the main point of this text by offering a character comparison to Mordecai and Esther. Do we have any record in the Old Testament of anyone else who lived in
1: exile close to a king? Who? Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach,
0: and Abednego. Right? They were in almost exactly the same scenario. Same similar context. Same closest with the king, if not closer. Think about how differently those four men of Daniel lived in the pagan land of their exile than did the two cousins of Esther. Mordecai and Esther. The men of Daniel continually identified themselves as worshipers of Yahweh and identified with the people of Yahweh no matter what. Remember? They refused even to eat the king's food and violate Torah. Remember that at the beginning, Daniel 1? It's like, we don't even eat, we can't eat this stuff. Please, perform your test. We'll eat the food that Yahweh says we should eat and we'll turn out better. And they did. God honored them. They refused to externally bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image, even when threatened
1: with being burned to
0: death. They
1: could have have externally conformed and still worshiped Yahweh. No, not really. Daniel continued to pray,
0: didn't he? And publicly, he openly prayed to Yahweh toward Jerusalem. Even when his fellow officials sought to trap him and send him to be eaten by lions. Through all of that, what happened? Yahweh preserved them. Yahweh honored them. Yahweh blessed them. He exalted them in the kingdom. He sustained them. He blessed the people of the kingdom through them, like his promises to Abraham says he will. And He brought glory to Himself through their lives in the eyes of their pagan captors. Did He not? This is the great God of Israel. Look at how the life of light through Daniel and his three friends shone in pagan lands the glory of Yahweh. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar because of that? He was humbled and became a worshiper of Yahweh Himself. Through all of that, Yahweh kept His promises, worked for their good, and glorified Himself. Now the two cousins of Esther, on the other hand,
1: are a very different story, isn't it? Even in the same context.
0: They kept their worship hidden. They kept their identity hidden. No wonder the name of God is not mentioned in Esther. No wonder there's no record of the word prayer or speaking of worship toward Yahweh. When the servants of Ahasuerus came to collect the virgins in Esther's province, there was no apparent resistance or refusal from either of them. Esther ate the food that would prepare her to please King Ahasuerus other than the food that Yahweh had prescribed and complied willingly with all the cosmetics given to accentuate her beauty for the king. Watching Mordecai complied right along with her. Esther spent the night with the king. Won his favor and love. Became his, his wife and his queen. That is such a different picture from Daniel. Now, certainly neither Daniel nor Esther's context was an easy one to live in. Both faced very difficult days. Both lived in very, among very pagan people. Both had to make very difficult decisions. And both faced... Moments of doubt and questioning and confusion and fear and distress. I mean, they're they're human, right? They're human. Daniel's human. Esther's human. Must have been intensely challenging for the Jewish people to learn to worship in a pagan land. Psalms written about it, isn't there? No temple,
1: no priesthood, no sacrifices. How would they worship God? How would they gather? Daniel. And his men seemed to do well
0: by God's grace. Mordecai and Esther at this point seem to have already folded under the pressure and made some very bad decisions and disobeyed the Word of God in order to conform to the pagan Persian world. So here we come to the very crux of the point. So what happens when you don't dare to be a Daniel?
1: What happens then?
0: What happens when you don't run from sin Like Joseph leaving your cloak in the claws of temptation. What if you don't? What happens when you bow down on the outside in order to avoid being thrown in the furnace of
1: the world's hatred for Yahweh? What happens then? Child of God, listen. When you lapse into worldliness and
0: compromise and sin as a child of God, will God's promises be null and void for you now?
1: That's the point of Esther. Will God's saving plans for you now and in eternity be abandoned by Him? Will God's loving purposes for you as His child be forfeited? How
0: did God deal with With children like Mordecai and Esther, he still loved them with a steadfast love, even when they loved the world. He still was faithful to them when they were unfaithful to him. He didn't, he still did them great good, even when they sinned against him. And in his kind and gracious providence, he even redeemed their foolishness by mercifully and providentially weaving it into His plan to rescue His people and fulfill all of His promises and plans for and through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is amazing, isn't it? That's why we sing amazing grace. Yeah? And why? Why would God treat Mordecai and Esther and us with such mercy and kindness? It is all because of Christ. It is because like Psalm 103.10 says, He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. You see, He dealt with Christ according to our sins because He laid our sins on Christ and Esther's and Mordecai's. He repaid Christ According to our iniquities on the cross, and he deals with us according to Christ's sinless obedience, as if we were as obedient as Christ. He repays us according to Christ's perfection with everlasting life and love. Therefore, he will keep his promises to us and complete his saving plans for us, not because of our performance, but because of Christ's. That's why. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work and you, bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Is that because of us or Christ? It's because of Christ. And for Christ's sake, He can even weave our worldliness, our compromise, even our sin, no matter how great it is, into His plan to advance His kingdom and exalt His Son. That's what He will do with Esther and Mordecai in this story.
1: Can you fathom such a mercy and kindness? It's unthinkable. Can you understand such
0: powerful, wise, masterful, and gracious providence? I can't get my mind around it.
1: Can you comprehend such love and faithfulness? So, Brothers and sisters in Christ, what ought to be our response to such a God of steadfast
0: love and faithfulness? Should we run freely into more worldliness and compromise and sin and cowardice since His grace will continue to surpass all of our sin? We read and sang of this this morning. Indeed, not. Right? Indeed, not. Such mercy and grace turns the heart of God's child to Himself and away from their sin. Doesn't it do that for you? When you think about this, it doesn't say, well now, let let my sin abound because grace will superabound. No, no, it says, amazing grace, let me sing of Christ for all of my life and
1: into eternity forever. Right? That's, That's what it does to the heart that's been touched by such grace. And I think we'll see as in the book of Esther
0: that this grace ought to humbly lead us to
1: repentance and run to Christ for his cleansing. Your sin is not too great. Have you sinned
0: against the Lord, even as a believer, and run with the world, valued what they value? We have, haven't we? We've not spoken and been the people of Yahweh and identified with Him as we ought to in a pagan, dark world. So we must repent of it. Our sin is great, but it's not too late. Go to Christ. You confess your sin. He is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse. And cry out to Him for His grace to change us and strengthen us in our weakness to live as His lights in a dark world to plead with Him to keep us from assimilating into that darkness because of fear and earthly desire and, or laziness. To depend on Him, to strengthen us, to stand and give us courage to identify with Christ and His church. To ask for His help. To walk in wisdom when the pressure is great, when the choices are difficult, when sometimes His will seems unclear. You know, decisions in our life are not, as always, not always as easy as they seem in a story, right? It's difficult sometimes. But He'll give wisdom if we ask. And may we speak the truth in love when we're reviled. May we be willing to suffer when we're threatened and to keep on entrusting ourselves to the perfect and powerful providence of God knowing that He will justly judge and fulfill all of His promises to
1: us in Christ. See? The glory of God as He providentially works
0: redemptive reversal at the most dire moment, even when it is our sin that brings us to that dire moment. God still works providence mercifully for the sake of Christ and let us learn to trust Him wholeheartedly. That's the point of the second scene in
1: Esther. Did you catch it? Can it give you assurance? Can it give you love for Yahweh because of His mercy toward you? To live differently
0: today and tomorrow. Esther is a wonderful book. For us to live in very difficult days that are ruled by pagan kings. We need this now before it gets more difficult, don't we? Let's remember this. Remember this for tomorrow. And the next day. And remember that we have a great Savior. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength and weakness. Let me hide myself in Him. Tempted, tried, and what? Often failing. He, my strength, my victory, wins. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, He, my comfort, helps my soul. Jesus, what a guide and keeper while the tempest still is high, storms about me, night o'ertakes me. He, my pilot, hears my cry. Jesus, I do now receive Him. More than all in Him I find. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I am His and He is mine. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. That's what Esther needed to know. That's what we need to know. Dear friend, have you come to Christ and received Him as your Savior and Lord? You won't make it safely through this dangerous world and into eternal life without Christ. That's the truth of it. The Apostle John wrote in John 3.36 and 1 John 5.12 he explained that if you have the Son you have life but if you don't have the Son you do not have
1: life and the wrath of God remains on you because of your sin. I urge you to come to Christ today. More than all in Him you will find. It doesn't matter the number of,
0: the number of your sins or the heinousness of your sins. He is a Savior who is greater than all the filth of your sin and will cleanse it away. If you come to Him who lived and died and rose again, He will have you.
1: Do you want Him? you want Him? If you do, He will have you. And He will save you. And cleanse you. And give you everlasting life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we come to this text and I confess it's been surprising for me to study through and maybe for here. But it points us to You. In spite of our
0: sinfulness, You are so merciful. In spite of our worldliness, You still... Weave our story into Your redemptive plan. You keep Your
1: promises. You unfold all of Your purposes for us for the sake of Christ. Oh, we rejoice in You. What a Father! What a Father who has removed our iniquity!
0: What a Father who You are who does not deal with us according
1: to our sins! You deal with us in Christ. Thank You. We praise Your name. Draw the wavering sinner to Christ this morning. Draw the doubtful saint to take hope and assurance in Christ. We pray in His name.